Cradeline Network. I am the law, and this is the 33rd episode of Big Meg One. Conrad, I'm my friend Eli, and this is the podcast where two Americans patrol their way through the Judge Dredd magazine. This episode, we're covering the Meg for August, September, and October 1983. That's Volume 2, Issues 35 to 38. This episode, Judge Dredd fights Slick Dickens and Mechanismo. An evil clown taunts Hershey, and both the taxidermist and Chopper return. And if you want to read along with us from the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, the Complete Case Files 19, Judge Anderson, the Sci Files 2, and the Judge Dredd Magazine issue 289. How are you doing this time, Eli? I'm doing great. Happy New Year. Fresh in the new year here as we're recording this, for mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> you know, time dilation. Right. Gotta be careful about it, right. you know? Yeah, sci fi stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the key. Um, but hey, speaking of crazy sci-fi stuff, Eli, oh. the stories we tell each other, let's get started with story one, Judge Dredd. Um, I'm trying to group all the dreads into one section now, Eli. I'm changing around a little bit, but let's get started. No, uh, but but the heavy metal dread's still separate. <laughs> Started with our first dread story, uh, Slick Dickens, Dress to Kill, Part 2. Script robot John Wagner, art robot Jousis, and Dave Milgate, letting robot Tom Frame. All right, Eli. Mega criminal Slick Dickens is on the loose, getting recognized by a hover cab driver. Oh, I always loved your adventures, buddy. And he mentions the author of those tales, a Truman Capote, which is sort of like the author of Truman Capote, I'll mention. And so Slick kills the driver by tapping him on the neck and sends his cab out on autopilot to, like, distract attention from his hidden base. He's a fan. He would have wanted it that way, Eli. <laughs> and he goes into his base to choose weapons and wardrobe for his final showdown with Judge Dredd. Meanwhile, at Justice Central, Dredd is deeply worried about fighting Slim Dickens. He's terrified, because after all, Slick Dickens, he's so stylish. (laughs) And look at me, Judge Dredd, I'm so ugly and lame. (laughs) Oh, I think you're a utilitarian, Dredd. That's a lie. (laughs) Slick is trying on g-strings and wigs but can't find the right outfit until suddenly there on a hanger he sees it dread is investigating a fire at a nightclub and the whole thing is being broadcast on tv to draw dickens out the place is crawling with hidden judges to protect dread and dread himself is shaken and on edge he gives an art he gives the arsonist um that started the fire 2226 years and even though Dredd knows that he should be safe, surrounded by all these judges, he still feels in danger as we see a shapely blonde lady moving around the scene. Dredd yells the press when suddenly the woman reveals herself. It's Slick Dickens! He's cross-dressing! Ah, oh, jeez, he's killing judges with punches and high-heeled kicks and stuff. <laughs> Suddenly, though, he he pulls a laser knife from his garter belt and 
artfully lobs it in the air. It spins end over end for agonizing seconds and lands directly in Dredd's throat, killing him. Oh, no. And at this point, Eli, I hope you realize that this story might not be as realistic as you might, as many right. things elsewhere in the comic there, might be. There were a couple clues. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. I got there. Dickens has killed Dredd with style and set a new fashion trend for cross-dressing, and so he disappears in a cloud of pixie dust. <laughs> the end of Judge Dredd! <laughs> nah, because what what I haven't been telling you, Eli, is that we've actually seen Slick Dickens before, a super spy character that true that author Truman Caput wrote, until that same author tried to reenact his character's crimes and was arrested way back in 1987. Mm. Now we see the art shift from Jousis to Dave Milgate, who's got a more, like, prosaic Dread, I guess. As we see Dread then visiting Kaput in the ISO cubes, where he presents the author with the manuscript of a new novel, Slick Dickens Dressed to Kill. <laughs> Dread gives Kaput five extra years in the cubes and says Pixie Dust is lame, so the story <laughs> ends with Kaput like trying to figure out a better idea for a teleportation thing within his story. I relate. I relate to Slick Dickens. This is uh, it's just the you know the torment of being a creative. You know, you want to you wanna write yeah. your fantasy. Judges keep coming in, putting more time on your your case, telling you that your story sucks. You got to get back to the drawing board. I mean, board. everyone's a critic, you know, but you do have to be careful about telling stories where the judges die in them, you mm. know. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, did, I could see them taking that personally. That's all I'm trying to say. Right. You know how it goes. Very fun story, though. Uh, if Although, yes, completely fantasy, but it was... Uh, it was fun just seeing someone trying to uh, insert their Mary Sue type character into the Dread universe. Yeah, yeah, I really liked both the Mary Sue-ness of Slick Dickens' character and just how he drew Dread as this like coward and stuff like that. <laughs> that was a a pretty fun take on the character, to be honest. Right. <laughs> Totally. So now let's go to our second Dread story. This one's called Revenge of the Egghead. Scripter by John Wagner, art by Jim Vickers, letting robot Tom Frame. And we're at the Kenneth Clark block. And Kenneth Clark is either, he's a, a British politician. He was either the Home Secretary or Chancellor of the Exchequer at this point. So we learn that this block is a low IQ block. So this is like a, a, a joke on that politician. Like, oh... A, a city block full of idiots. That's your legacy, bro. That kind of stuff. <laughs> anyway, we see a no-good egghead nerd get beaten up by neighborhood <laughs> children as their parents uh, cheer them on as they do so. We don't like eggheads around these parts. And it seems that the egghead, e Eggward Shelduck, oh, no. was placed in this block by mistake. Oh, my God. So eggy. <laughs> He finally gets into his apartment, checks his messages. His girlfriend, Egwina, is breaking up with him. And he's been, been denied a home loan because he lives in this block full of idiots. There's also, a, he gets a call from a robot from the housing authority that says that he will eventually be placed in a new apartment. But probably not for, like, until year after next. He's stuck there. Um, in a not then in a, in a not very smart move, Ed, Edward calls the judges on that family that assaulted him, and they all get arrested, which means that now he's marked as a snitch. Oh no! Which you don't want to be, Eli. Right. Uh uh. 
<laughs> Finally, though, he has an idea. He'll mix up some tranquilizers using simple household chemicals and introduce them into the block's air supply, which will finally cool everybody's jets and let them chill out for a bit. He puts a nose plug to make himself immune. Um, he puts the plan into action, but soon the judge is noticed because crime has dropped in the Kenneth Clark block to zero <laughs> instead of the usual three crimes a minute that you'd expect it to have. <laughs> Dredd goes to check it out and finds everybody, everybody in the block passed out, including a giant traffic jam at the top of an escalator. Um, when he first arrives, he actually passes out momentarily and has to activate his own respirator to avoid this gas. Um... And yeah, he eventually, he investigates further, he finds Edward's gas dispenser, and when he removes it, the citizens of the block wake up and start fighting each other, and a riot soon breaks out. Luckily, it's all quickly quelled, and Dredd bursts into the apartment of a peacefully reading Edward, because he's the only one here that was smart enough to have done this. <laughs> Dredd explains that Edward's trank gas must have gotten mixed up with the trank gas that the judges constantly pump into the air. And when they do it, it's legal. But when he does it, it's illegal. And so he gets 20 years in the cubes. Right. And I, okay. I don't no, agree no. with that freaking uh, the nose thing. You still breathe in your mouth. Like, he should still... Anyway, that's not... It's true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You'd think that, yeah, you, you, you would knock yourself out unless you're wearing a full face mask, right. you know. But this, this might be a 2020, <laughs> 2020's lesson got about it. appropriate mouth and nose coverings that we have learned <laughs> that maybe they had not learned yet in the 1990s, mm, you know. Got it, got it. <laughs> or something. And that takes us to our final Dread story. This one's a multi-parter. Mechanismo Body Count. Um, script by John Wagner, art robot Manuel Bennett, letting robot Tom Frame. It's the only time we'll see Manuel Bennett on the podcast, but he'll do a lot of work on the British comic Commando as well. In the sewers, under Mega City One, tech judge Stitch wanders with a flashlight and a megaphone, call, um, and, um, calling out to the lost Mechanismo judge number five, I should mention also that the uniform he's wearing is pretty is pretty um has has seen better times. He's missing a chest eagle and a badge, right. I or a shoulder that. eagle and a badge, and elbow and knee pads. Yeah, no, he looks kind of naked actually, or right. sort of you know, without the extra kit, the uniform transitions to pajamas very quickly. Right. I think. And I thought, is that just what tech judges wear, or is it he just he's trying to keep it light? No, I think he's got some backstory going on, yeah. as we'll soon see. That's funny. He, uh, he demands number five surrenders and marks a wall with a circled uh, five while going further into the darkness, sort of marking his way as he goes into the sewers. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, Chief Magruder and some techs watch a new robo-judge go through a shooting training course. And I'll mention here that Magruder is, does not have a beard in these pictures. She must have shaved recently or something like that. Um, as the trial goes forward, Magruder gets a report that Judge Stitch has escaped from the Psycho Cubes. The new robot is doing well as Magruder sighs and says that Stitch is basically a lost cause. You know, he keeps escaping from from uh, psychiatric treatment to go into the sewers to try to find mechanism to try to find the lost number five. Apparently, it's been a year since the events of the last Mechanismo story, and surely in that time, number five's batteries would have shut down anyway. 
In the end, she decides to just leave Stitch to his madness in the sewers, as we see that these Mark II mechanismos are working at peak efficiency, better than a human judge, and without any of the design flaws that made them a menace previously. Honestly, at this point, the only challenge is how to tell Dread that they're going to start rolling these robot judges out again, because you know he's going to have a problem with it. Um, Meanwhile, Eli... A bunch of no-good burglars are robbing some store. When a figure appears behind them, it's the partially destroyed battle damage number five. (laughs) It goes to arrest the perps, but when they draw guns on them, he shoots them instead. Um, Finishing up in our final issue for for, um, Judge Dredd in issue 38, I just want to mention that uh, all these pages have a credits page with like an, you know, sort of a a teaser image um, with the credits for the story, Eli. And the one on 38, I I think they messed up the aspect ratio for it or something like that. It's got a very, like, you know, overly skinny look to it if you take a look at that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Ah, I see. Yeah. I see what you mean. I don't know, you know, perils of uh, the early days of computer-aided graphic design. Right. (laughs) Right. I do love uh, this uh, new uh, damaged look for Mechanismo. Like, he's got a little robot arm. He's got his pads all all beat up. He's got, like, a a pneumatic peg leg. He's got kind of one arm still, very messed, jacked-up helmet and stuff like that, for sure. (laughs) Number five blows holes in two of the perps. And then shoots the vehicle that a third perp is driving with a high X round and blows it up. Number he then calls into control, saying that he's taken these perps out, and they're shocked that he's still alive, and certainly shocked that he's like calling in and revealing his position to control as well. The robot cuts transmission and they send a judge to investigate. Naturally, the closest judge to there is Judge Dredd. <laughs> Number five stumps through the city, its oral receptors picking up sounds of a mugging. It arrives on the mugging scene as uh, and scans the two perps, taking out a citizen for their records, then gives them a choice of the cubes or recyc. And the perp, perps, of course, t- choose recyc. <laughs> five takes one of them out, and the surviving mugger tries to take their victim hostage as Dredd, in his investigation, has found the first three burglars that Mechanismo took out. This standoff continues, and in the end, number five just shoots the mugger right through the victim's chest. That's rough. Not even like a RoboCop thing where he, like, artfully avoids hurting the bystander. You're like, just straight through. Right. Um... In the end, number five calls this in again, and I realize, and I see that they're on a in a pole pot alley, the um, brutal dictator, which is a ridiculous thing to name a street for. And then Mechanismo continues on, but the judges now have a bead on the location of number five, and so they're sending out an APB to locate and destroy the robot. Next time on Judge Dread, Metal Mayhem. Nice. I do also like the uh, Robo Judge. Thanks the civilian he shot. Like, hey, uh, yeah. many thanks, citizen. Your sacrifice is appreciated. Pity they couldn't they couldn't all be as public spirited as you are. And he's just <laughs> on the ground bleeding. Just uh, someone help. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's almost the only good citizen is a shot citizen. That's when everyone. I mean, you know, <laughs> at least it's harder for them to commit crimes once they've been shot. You know. Right. I guess that's true. Right. He's run. He's run the numbers. <laughs> yeah. Something. Jeez. All right. 
yeah, fun Dredge Dread stuff. Um, you know, I like this me- I like this running thread of these Mechanismo stories, I think. Yeah. Um, they're just sort of this continuing character and evolution of the Mega City that I think is kind of fun and contained pretty much entirely in the magazine, too. So it's sort of a fun, like, magazine only, I guess. Mm. Yeah, and I really, like, whenever Mechanismo shows up, I get excited. Say, similar Definitely. to how I used to feel about uh, Judge Death. Where I'm like, oh, snap. Totally. Yeah, Judge Death has just been in prison, so we can't, you know... Mm-hmm. Right. Can't show up as much. You know, I don't know. It's the, the lack of a ro- of a rogues gallery that's a key part of Judge Dredd sometimes, mm. I guess. <laughs> but I guess, on the other hand, when we're, as well as having a rogues gallery, key part of comics, Eli, always exciting crossovers. So let's have a fun one with Story 2, Hershey and Steel. Script about Dave Stone, art about Charlie Adlard, letting about Gordon Robson, the Armitage team here. Kind of a side story for Treasure Steel with some crossovers. In the ruins of the behemoth housing project in Britsit, some goons attack a guy, but he attacks back with a bunch of deadly chest tentacles. Oh, geez. Deadly happens. tentacles are the second worst kind of tentacles, Eli. <laughs> Bad times. <laughs> At the new old Bailey, an H-Wagon is landing as Treasure Steel and a few other judges wait. And Judge Hershey steps off the vehicle. Steel is going to be looking after Hershey. And it seems that Hershey's here searching for someone named Joseph Malik, who is the tentacle guy from before. Um, In an alley, a couple toughs are beating up a drug dealer that's been skimming product when they in turn are also taken out by Malik. He's just running a rampage. The judges arrive at the Behemoth Hab Project. Four square miles of jack gangs and quiche heads. Steel grew up here, and she tells Hershey to ditch the uniform because they don't like judges around these parts. In civilian clothes, the two women arrive at Malik's uh, last known address, but it's been abandoned for weeks, and they find a big gross pile of human skin on the floor. Yikes. <laughs> Malik wanders the streets and sees the Phoenix Club as Steele and Hershey do similar wandering and Steele rousts a guy for having a weapon called a flenser, which liquefies flesh at the molar level straight off the bone. It's kind of a cool murder gun, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Steele calls it into dispatch, but is told that there's a lot going on because there's a massacre in progress at the Phoenix Club. Hershey's interested in this and heads to the location where we see a riot squad just trying to cordon off the place as people stream out of the club. Hershey and Steele push their way in and see the horror going on inside the club. Malik all gross and tentacly surrounded by the bodies of his victims and stuff. Oh, it's no good. Right. His rib cage is open with laying the tentacles out. It's almost like it's- yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got got some exposed chest organs that include the the bases for his tentacles and stuff. Gross, gross. <laughs> Malik's killing a ton of people, and the Britstead judges aren't doing much to stop it. They're just sort of contain it because they don't really care about if these losers in the behemoth or, uh, block uh, live or die. <laughs> Suddenly, Malik comes crashing out of a window. Hershey and Steel in chase. Hershey shoots the monster with a pistol shot and explains to Seal that it was a tracer, so now they can go and find the creature's lair with some sweet weapons that she brought in a diplomatic pouch, just like a rifle and some grenades and other stuff like that. In the lair, we see Malik's tentacles moving around as 
People in cocoons beg for mercy and are hatched out seemingly as new tentacle beasts. Uh, Steel and Hershey make their way through the through the behemoth as gangs sort of move around their periphery and stuff like that. They near the lair, and Hershey explains the backstory. It's standard Justice Department stuff, I guess, like some perps in Mega City one that are sentenced to death or instead used for medical experimentation. Sometimes they get lucky. Sometimes they become science monsters like this Malik guy. <laughs> <laughs> He escaped and fled, fled to Britsit a few months ago. Now Hershey's here to clean up the mess. Steel starts to yell at Hershey about Mega City 1 being full of assholes as they enter the sewer tunnel. Yeah. But oh shit, it's full of tentacles! <laughs> and there's just a whole huge octopus monster here. It's got an energy field protecting it, and it grabs Treasure Steel, but she, in turn, pulls a gren- grabs a grenade... Uh, sets it off and jams into the octopus's mouth, losing a hand seemingly, but taking out the beast. Once everything's said and done, Hershey compliments Steele's bravery, and Steele tells Hershey to drop off. <laughs> Hershey calls Steele an amateur, Steele calls Hershey a fascist, and they sort of part as enemies. Good times. <laughs> Couldn't even shake hands on it. Oh, man. <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> But I think this is a fun story. I don't know. Was, I, I really liked seeing the, these two, like, you know, tough ladies sort of meet up and, you know, show the differences they have between themselves and stuff like that. Um, and then and then fight a big, gross tentacle monster. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm down for that most times, I, I feel like. I don't know what else you could even ask for. Right. It's, um, I, I actually wasn't too familiar with Steel. Like, I, like, I... Felt a vague familiar, like maybe we've read a story. Yeah, yeah, before. she's been she she's been the sidekick in all these Armitage stories. Got it, got like it. The ones that are thank that are set you. In the present, she's um, Armitage's uh, partner. I see her her hairstyle was just a little different, and it threw me. Uh, but she, yeah, she suffers a little bit from looking different, mm. but by looking rather different, depending on who's drawing her, mm. for sure. Right, but yeah, I was like, okay, Hershey's hanging out. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. But I mean, when uh, Steel goes back to Hershey, she's gonna be down one hand. That seems like a a lot. <laughs> well, presumably she can get like a uh, like an implant or an artificial hand. Oh right, like that, I forgot we're know. we're in the future. Yeah. Oh yeah, Obviously. buddy. <laughs> I was going Star Wars. Like, oh no, prosthetic. Like, oh no, just grow a new hand. It's fine. Just what do you? I mean, yeah. Like I think, and I think even the prosthetics they have are pretty advanced. Right. You know, that you can't really tell a huge difference if you're wearing a glove or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, right? Yeah, I do wonder if it's yeah. actually going to come up in a future story where they're like, "You got how's your hand?" You know, just some little should, thing. Yeah, that... I th- yeah. We should definitely keep an eye out for it in the next Armitage story if <laughs> if they discuss it or not for sure. But hey, speaking of uh, tales of Judge Science Gone Mad, Eli. Mm. Let's talk about story three, rapid growth. Uh, this is just sort of a one-off, like, not really related Dreadworld story, I guess. Script about Chris Stanley, art robot Siku, letting robot Gordon Robson. It's the first time we're seeing uh, the writer Stanley here. He'll go on to do a fair amount of stuff here in the Meg, especially Harmony. And we're in Oz, the Sy- Sydney, Melbourne Connor, to be precise, which is apparently the fitness capital of the world. Everybody works out in a slim and trim, which makes Taylor Gordon obese a bit of a strange case. Oh, I see the pun there, Eli, obese. He's a 
tailor of fatty clothing. And I'll mention that even though he's technically a fatty, he's actually pretty pretty trim in comparison to the Mega City One version of fatty. He doesn't even have like one of those wheels to help you navigate your gut or anything like that, the belly wheel. All he's got in his life is his failing business and his loving wife, which ain't so bad, but he could still, but things get worse when a bunch of, when a pair of burglars burst in and take all their money. Um, but when they go to leave, these robbers start to swell up and become fat. So fat they can't fit through the doorway. Oh no. The judges are called in. The crooks are arrested. And a judge explains to Obese that they've started giving criminals some kind of drug when they're in the ISO cubes that when they reoffend causes them to instantly gain weight. And the more crime they do, the fatter they get, <laughs> which gives Obese an idea. Uh, later, we cut to an obese newscaster talking about a wave of unexplained obesity sweeping Oz. Food mania is taking the city by storm as diet products are airdropped from around the world onto the conurb. <laughs> Obese is selling clothes like hotcakes as he reveals to his wife that he managed to steal some of that fattening agent and put it in the Sydney Melbourne, um, like, conurb water supply. So now whenever anyone breaks the law, they'll gain some weight. And people are always breaking the law because, you know, it's a fascist state of judges and all that kind right. of stuff, Eli. It's Absolutely. inescapable. Yeah, it's uh, three crimes per minute. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So everybody's getting fat and thus these sellers of fat clothes are having a real good time. But one morning, they're completely out, of, almost completely out of stock but still surrounded by increasingly corpulent Aussies, which is bad times, Obese goes to close the shop, but the fatties break in and start stealing clothes, and because they're all breaking in and stealing things, Eli, they're doing more and more crimes. Oh, no. Oh, no. This causes a chain reaction that causes all these fatties to swell and swell and eventually explode in a big mushroom cloud of like meat and blood and stuff Ooh. like that. It's gross. Anyway, now Gordon's in jail, which isn't too bad because, hey, he gets to uh, do his tailor work and make everybody's uniforms. So it all works out in the end. Right. You follow your dreams, kids. That's that's really what's really the message is. Totally. Follow your dreams. Try not to kill hundreds of people. Right. You don't want to have people explode in a mushroom cloud of just people. Like, it's not even like... Yeah. <laughs> people don't explode, yeah. right? Like, the the tension you'd have to have in your own body to create an actual explosion is... I mean, I guess if you got spontaneously fat enough, fast enough, I guess. Maybe you're right. Yeah, that... I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you just get fat instantly. Right. Right. Like that doesn't. <laughs> that makes no sense. <laughs> it's better not to think about right. it. Honestly, the science isn't like. all here yet. I get it. All right. We're just yeah. We're just we're just running ourselves around trying to explain this magic. You know? <laughs> yeah. I guess, hey, oh, let's continue our theme of science run amok. Actually, mm. so much running amok with story four. Heavy Metal Dread. Script robots John Smith and Jim Alexander. Art robot John Hinklinton. Coloring robot Keith Page. Letting robot Gordon Robson. So we're continuing this Heavy Metal story from last time, Eli, where old ladies around Mega City One are using VR headsets to control cyborg murder apes to kill smut for purveyors in Mega City One. We see some murders taking place. 
as a weird sideways and rain-covered dread calls in for a list of possible victims. There's some interesting graphic design going on in these early pages of Heavy Metal Dread. He goes to check on the like on a likely victim named Ennis Potter, um, who has a name similar to a Garth Ennis of 2000 AD, right? Which might so this might be a joke, but we also see the director of TV Channel 69, the death metal rocker Axel Rocks, and an underground porn baron all killed by these murder apes. <laughs> Dredd arrives just in time to see Potter killed as well, and this is at the Robert Maplethorpe Lux Apartments. Robert Maplethorpe, the uh, the photographer of very controversial photos. And Dredd decides to follow the escaping ape back to its base. As Dredd follows it, though, the ape starts acting strangely as the lady controlling it has a heart attack from the stress of the mental uplink. And then something else changes in the mental uplink, too. Dredd follows the ape back to, the, to a bingo hall, and we see a bunch of other apes also returning. Oh no, Eli, they've turned on their creators! It's the inevitable result of uh, ape murder, I'm afraid. Right. As Dread arrives just in time to clean up the mess. Um, as the we see that they've killed all these old ladies. And it seems that indeed the apes have finally bit back. <laughs> right. It looks like the uh, muscle memory. They also sewed all the ladies' faces and eyes the way yeah. uh, they did. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, they sewed all their head holes shut because, okay. you know, that's how, how you do it, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah, interesting. As I, as I, I always try not to look too hard at Judd at a... Uh, yeah, Heavy Metal Dread. <laughs> heavy metal. Yeah, no, it's but, good to... But, uh, yeah, I'm trying to find some sort of poetic irony. And, yeah, it's like, yeah, maybe it's... They were actually the monsters. They deserve the punishment that they were dealing out based on... Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, certainly possible. I don't know. Right. Maybe something less with less morals. Jim Alexander takes over on writing as we see a party going pretty hard in Mega City One, but they could use some more ladies here, man. When suddenly a trio of shapely lasses show up and they're covered in mouths. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a it's a kisser gram. That's what you want in your uh yeah. in your lady show up. Mouths everywhere. I guess so. Mouth all over. We jump to a crotch level view of Judge Dredd as he gets a call from Control. That's what it is, Eli. Um, they've done this gene testing he wanted, and um, as he stands next to a body that's had its face shot, shot off, and it seems that this one lab has been creating mutograms for parties and such. They've been getting very aggressive, even gravely injuring people, and their most recent kissograms have turned deadly and escaped the gene labs. Killer kissograms are on the loose. <laughs> The report comes in, and we learn that at the Cherry Hill block, dudes are getting kissed to death as we see these mouth-covered weirdos just taking guys out, kissing them, killing them. There's a lot of mouths involved. It's gross. But Dred's on the case. (laughs) They turn off the lights by smashing guys' face into the circuit breaker. And at least one of these kissograms can't wait to get her lips all over Dredd's chin. <laughs> the lawman enters the room, finds a bunch of bodies, and is attacked by one of the kissograms, just throwing herself at him, dozens of tongues waggling all over the place. And I, I don't like it, Eli. I don't <laughs> like it very much at all. Luckily, Dredd is not um, is able to handle it better than I can, so he just shoots this lady's head off like right away. Right. 
And this impresses the other two Kissograms who swoon at Dredd's manliness and basically surrender. They're taken away, and one asks if before they go they can give Dredd pick a peck on the cheek. And he says, not on the first date. The end! Yeah, uh, kudos for creating a nightmare I didn't know I had. You know, I was... I, yeah, I enjoyed this pun at the end, but these mouth ladies are no good. Don't like... Well, I mean, I mean, they're doing what they're set out to do, which is right. be gross and terrifying. Right. But yeah. counterpoint, t- are gross and terrifying. <laughs> right. We were so busy worrying about if we could, we didn't think about if we should make this happen. Uh, I'm sure that was completely intentional. That was They thought yeah. about it. Someone told them they shouldn't. They are like, perfect. We know it's exactly. on. Right. Let's do it. Make me a multi-mouthed monster. No eyes, just mouth. What do they? How do they see? I guess they just lick stuff to figure out where. Yeah, they got like taste location. You know, right? Like taste the wind for it or something like that. Who could guess? Right. I'm I'm gonna ask it. Uh, Like a lot of these, I'm just gonna try not to think about it. Try not to dream about it. Heavy Metal Dread once more accomplishing its goal of scarring us for life. (laughs) We're actually going to take a bit of a break from Heavy Metal Dread now, but it will return in the fall of 1994, so maybe about a year from now or so. A year of of progs from now. Yeah. Terrifying stuff um, and terrifying new things, Eli. But, hey, when you want to talk about a blast from the past... You could go to Story 5, Chopper. Script robot Garth Ennis, art robot Martin Eamond, learning robot Robert Langridge. It's Eamond's only work for 2000-related stuff. And as you might recall way back at the start of the podcast, Eli, we last saw Chopper in Volume 1, Issue 5 of the magazine. He's this sort of perennial dread foe. He rides a uh, hover surfboard and stuff like that. Right. If I remember... Like Dread takes him as the foe. Chopper's kind of mi- trying to mind his own business. And then indeed, <laughs> indeed, yeah. It, in Chopper's stories, where Dread's involved, Dread is the bad guy, of course. Right. <laughs> yeah, but so Chopper's now living in the Radback, the sort of radiated outland outback of Australia. With you know, we last saw him living at a at a commune where he had like you know a girlfriend and some you know and other other buds and stuff like that. But now we see night falling on the Radback, and we learn about Dead Man's Twist. 500 kilometers of the worst terrain on Earth. And I really want to, as we just start this story, call out the art style here. It's super stylized. We see Chopper being, like, his body's really skinny with this ultra-long, like, sideways hair kind of thing. Right. And gigantic sneakers and stuff like that. Right. I don't know what type of gel you need to use to get your hair to just perpetually be to the side like that but yeah, it's impressive he's definitely yeah he's definitely stolen some uh like video game like like japanese rpg protagonist mm-hmm. hair styling products <laughs> right. this kind of look <laughs> um chopper's buddy jug says he's crazy to try to surf through the twist if the rocks don't get you the radiation will but chopper won't be stopped instead he zooms in and even as he does though he does wonder why he's doing this and realizes it's to quench the fire for adrenaline in his soul one last time to push life to the edge. He zips through these spiky tunnels, the radiation warping his mind as well as his body, and he starts to hallucinate. 
The stones take the shape of Judge Dredd, who he blasts right through. But then he's confronted by the ghost of his past, of the Phantom, the painting robot he had a graffiti duel with when we first met the character of Marlon Chopper Shakespeare. The Phantom's here with the ghosts of Chopper's past, people who died so that he could become number one, and now they want revenge! This mountain of dead men try to pull Chopper down to drown them in their weight, but the Sky Surfer breaks free, saying he's just got a guilty conscience and these deaths can't, these people can't weigh him back. <laughs> he passes through memories of his lost loved ones, including his mother, who endlessly just washed dishes and then dirtied them and washed them again. Just sort of a robot, like near robotic character let down by Mega City One. And then remembers the killing fields of Super Surf Eleven, where he was all once again, sh- and he's once again shot to hell. In a moment of darkness, he is confronted by death itself, but rejects it. He's gotta live! Outside the twist, Jug has been waiting six hours and drunk all of his beers. He wonders what he's gonna tell Chopper's girlfriend, Charlene, but then suddenly Chopper comes flying out, scarred but unbroken. He's embraced the gift of life, and it's time to go home. The end of Chopper! Nice. And this is the last we'll see of him, like, for a very long time, Eli. Chopper will have a, a brief cameo in 2080 and 1994, and then a solo story in 95. He does eventually come back to the Meg, but not until 2018. So, like, don't hold your breath, basically. Well, yeah. I, I think this is, this is a great send-off to Chopper. Is I felt like it was just mm-hmm. kind of a callback. It was the uh, Avengers uh, Endgame of Chopper. All the greatest yeah. hits. Let's talk about all that stuff. Yeah, a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, confronting his past and, you know, saying that he's gotten over some of the adrenaline things that I think were have become a driving force for the character as the uh, as the story went on and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I wish you'd been a little closer to the previous Chopper story, I guess. It seems very random. Like, because mm-hmm. when I... I remember when I first read this, wondering if this would be the start of a bunch of new Chopper stories, but it really isn't. No, right. it's sort of a kind of a tease almost or something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, w- when they were like, "This is the most dangerous thing on earth," I was like, "Okay, so they they're just they're not going to top this." I mean, unless someone makes something more dangerous than this <laughs> thing, but totally, like I think they've already done that. I don't know, <laughs> yeah, Chopper. Yeah, being an adrenaline yeah. junkie might fall no, for it again, yeah. but. It's true. There's been increasingly over-the-top um, super surfs and stuff like that, and there's not a lot for them to go, which is why I think it's take it'll it'll take them so long to kind of figure out what next to do with Chopper, you know. Um, but all this, Eli, you know, we say goodbye to one character, and I feel like honestly, this Chopper story is kind of just slotted in there because they needed space because they're about to sort of do a big reboot story um a big sort of it, like re- restart issue with all new stories in, in issue 37 and so at this halfway point it's a good time for to take a break and talk about some covers editorials and dreadlines just all the non-comic stuff from these comics <laughs> Issue 35, John Hinklinton draws a rainy dread face on this cover, and 20 dread novels must be one! The editorial calls out a bunch of twos in this issue, two new stories, two part twos of two-part stories, and so on. The credit text says, I can't stand the rain, and mid-issue, there's an excerpt of the dread Armitage crossover novel Death Masks by Dave Stone. 
and the contest that you can that you enter to win these books is to write a funny caption for a picture of Virgin Media CEO Richard Branson and ju- and a Judge Dredd co- uh, cosplayer because uh, Virgin is uh, publishing these books. Letters complement the hot, the Hottie House siege story, bring up continuity with Anderson's retirement, compliment Judge Anderson, and say that the USA is ruining Dread with DC creating original Dread comics in the coming year, Judgment on Gotham 2 coming out soon, and the upcoming Dread movie with Sylvester Stallone. Kill off Dread and leave him to the Americans, says the writer. The editors disagree. <laughs> The issue ends with a teaser for the upcoming taxidermist story, which we'll talk about later, and the return of Chopper, which we just talked about. (laughs) Issue 36, Martin Eamond draws a shadowy helmet gazing over a sky surfer and and a spiky landscape as Chopper returns. The editorial is stoked for for, for for Chopper to be back. And discusses a plan to provide more back issues to readers. And the credit text says it's Shakespearean. Because Chopper's full name is Marlon Shakespeare. You right. see? Yeah, yep. <laughs> yep. Mid-issue, there's ads for the upcoming Mechanismo story, which we talked about. The new Judge Hershey story. Shimada and Taxidermist, which we're about to talk about. Listen, you know, whatever. We're caught out of time here. Um, <laughs> the letters page compliment recent stories call out the um, extensive call out female stereotypes in the comic pages and are not impressed by current events showing up there as well and also ask that the technology in Judge's weapons be updated. <laughs> this page also has a quick um, comic strip by Robert McCallum where a hairy man is shorn by a robot barber. It cuts off both the hair on his head and his head himself and then the Robot arm spritzes some hairspray on his on his neck stump. That's pretty funny. <laughs> the comic ends with an offer for back issues of the magazine, all the way back to a volume one, issue sixteen. Issue thirty-seven. Mark Wilkinson draws Dread merging with a mechanismo head, man or machine. And this cover advertises four new stories and sort of going along with the two thousand eighty jumping on prog in of a five eighty-two. I'll also mention that the price of the Meg has gone up to one pound and thirty-five pence, and you you know a price increase was coming, Eli, because a previous issue said that the price was still only one pound twenty-five, and that's how you know that there's a price increase because they mentioned that it's currently cheap and won't be soon, which implies that it won't be soon. Right. You know. Um, this issue also comes with a fold-out poster of Judge Anderson with a comic on the other side, and we'll discuss that comic later in the episode. The credit text says, Mechanismo Meltdown. In Dreadlines, the debate about violence rages, and there's more distaste over the coming Judge Dread film. People don't like Stallone as Dread. <laughs> it's also another Robert McCallum uh, comic where two judges sort of sit between a panel making faces at each other, and then one celebrates as we see its two side judges psychically playing battleships. So that was kind of funny. I don't know. Yeah, that was super cute. <laughs> Issue 38 Mega Olympics Mania. We see the taxidermist and Fraulein Koppenstoffer walk in, walk out in USA-themed clothing as the uh, as a human head with Olympic rings over its eyes looks on in the background. And this is all drawn, of course, by one of my favorites, uh, Ian Gibson. And I should mention, I guess, like 
you know, the taxidermist story we're going to talk about is very Olympics themed. And we're sort of in October 1993 here. The Olympics would start in uh, the 94 Olympics would start in a, in February of 1994. So it's coming pretty soon. And you got to think where they were sort of commissioning these stories that people qualifying for those games and the hype building up to them would have also been in the news. The editorial mentions that this is the first big Ian Gibson work um, for 2000 in many years. So I'm excited about it. It mentions that issue, this issue comes with a 1994 calendar. The credit text says going for the gold. Uh, in Dreadlines, letters complement some recent thrills, and we also have the first letters from writers Mac, N- Matt Nixon and, Solon- um, and Sloano, who will be fixtures in, Dreadli- in the Dreadlines pages for many years to come, just sort of uh, saying very, ex- you know, saying the comic sucks, being very extreme and stuff like that. It's basically a, a weird early 90s version of trolling on a message board, but in the form of letters to the editors, basically. <laughs> Um, and listen, I'm not going to get them. I'm not going to recap their letters very much because I'm not a huge fan of this stuff. Right. Of course. Yeah. The comic comes with a calendar for 1994 with images by John McRae and Chris Halls. And I'll mention to anybody that if you have a copy of this calendar, you can actually use it in 2022 because 94 and 22 have the same dates. Like the, oh, the wow. calendars are the same for those two years. That's cool. Kind of a funny coincidence kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. But speaking of things that are not funny, Eli, uh, like clowns. Right. <laughs> go to story six, Judge Hershey. Uh, script robot Igor Goldkind, art robot Kevin Cullen, letting robot Gordon Robson. It's our second time with one of these Goldkind Cullen stories. And I like the, the, the black and white art style here a lot. I think it's neat. Yeah, me too. Uh, We see Judge Hershey blasting down the street on her cycle. She gets a call about a suicide attempt at the Sylvia Plath block, which is ridiculous. That's the, uh, you know, a female poet who committed suicide. So that's sort of not in great taste. But she instead (laughs) rejects it and continues riding out there. And she's basically taking some time off. Um, You know, don't contact me. And heads to the Mega City One Children's Re-Education Clinic. Where we see a Punch and Judy puppet show where a judge arrests Punch for spousal abuse. <laughs> After the show, Hershey goes to say hello to a little boy sitting on his own, staring off into nothingness. This kid has taken refuge within himself after the events of Judgment Day. In a flashback, we see the Walking Dead overwhelming Hershey. And then she goes to check on her sister in the J.G. Ballard block. J.G. Ballard was a uh, new wave science fiction author and finds her dead in her apartment. Um, the, and her, But her son, um, Anton, still alive, but surrounded by, by corpses and stuff like that. Hershey takes the kid um, and, you know, obviously seeing his, pa- seeing his mother die, the general zombiness of Judgment Day, it's traumatized the poor kid. Hershey takes um, Anton for an outing, and the two head out on Hershey's bike. They're going to the Mega City One Astral Circus. And while this whole story has been in black and white, as the circus starts, a strange figure appears in full color. He's sort of wearing a black and white Harlequin's costume, but bathed in a pink light. He comes backflipping in, welcoming everyone to the fall. And Anton smiles and seems interested, which is concerning. (laughs) (laughs) The 
the clown monologues monologues poetically about the nature of the human heart. He's got this kind of already lowercase font as he does so. And Hershey realizes that she can't move. She's being held in place by some kind of psychic force. The Harlequin, the Harlequin calls down all the kids from the crowd and they head into the ring of the circus, Anton included. A spotlight over them turns orange and then blue and then all the kids disappear. Later at the Council of Five, the other judges are skeptical about this as Hershey says that like... She couldn't have stopped them. She's being held in place by some psychic attack. But a psi judge says that there wasn't any, like, reading, psi readings in that area. Hershey says maybe it was a mutant or something. But the other judges are skeptical. Um, and three and 30,000 kids are gone. They've got to find and put a stop to it. But then another judge comes in. Similar attacks are happening or elsewhere in the city. And another 100,000 kids are missing. Jesus. Bad times. And we seems that judges are sort of holding the are have the clown at bay at the Ted Bundy Memorial Orphanage. Hershey goes down to check, and I'll mention that Ted Bundy was an American serial killer. Not to be confused, though, with John Wayne Gacy, he was a serial killer that dressed up like a clown. It's a different one. Still, not great taste to have an orphanage that's called that's called Ted Bundy. That's ridiculous. Yeah, two strikes so far. This one, one story. There's some tough ones. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the clown, the clown is standing in front of the building, and Hershey goes to talk to him. She asks for the return of the children, and the clown says no. So she orders the judges to open fire, but all the bullets miss. The clown goes leaping into the air and lands in the middle of the assembled judges and this starts punching them all out while rhyming. Hershey demands to know what's going on, but he just says it's a secret and then rises into the air and disappears into a burst of starlight, leaving a colored card behind. Hershey picks it up and before that he was talking about someone named Barbara, which we learn now is Hershey's first name. We finally learned it. Dun dun. And I'll mention that Barbara Hershey is actually the name of a uh, of a film actress from like the 60s or something like that. And I think they've literally just given her this name because they've started working on the script for Judge for the Stallone Judge Dredd, which also features Judge Hershey. And so they had to make it make a final decision about what her name was going to be before it went to film, basically. Right. <laughs> and I guess as we talk about, uh, you know, lady judges doing their things, Eli. Let's hop quickly to some poster action with Story 7, Anderson Side Vision. Script robot Alan Grant, art robot Mark Wilkinson, and no listed letterer. Uh, this is a quick story that takes place on the back of the Anderson of the Mark Wilkinson Anderson poster that came with issue 37. And is just kind of linking the pre like the childhood end story with some future Anderson adventures. Um, a newly retired Anderson is aboard a spaceship heading towards Sagittarius A West, a massive black hole in the center of the Milky Way. She reaches out to it psychically and is sucked into a terrifying dreamscape. She sees enemies and friends from her past, as well as some cool space dragons. But eventually she returns to her body and to life. She decides that she'll live till she dies. And between it all... There is hope, and somehow that'll be enough. <laughs> continues on to travel the spaceways. Yeah. Yeah. Cute and fun. But 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, as you'd as you'd kind of expect from a picture or from a comic on the back of a poster, this one is way more about visuals and mm. cr- and and weirdness than it is about actual plotting and and terminology and stuff. I always love the term "I'll live till I die." Like, yeah, that's kind of how everyone does it. I don't know. What hey, <laughs> yeah, but hey, good yeah, on you. Me, me too, buddy. But you know, sometimes, sometimes calling it out um, adds some weight to it. Right. I guess. Like yeah. It's it's extra or something. I also like how they uh, added a. Was there? Did she ever fight a Japanese style dragon? I knew. No. <laughs> I knew a lot of Nothing the other I'm ones. I'm aware of. Yeah. I was like, oh, here's that alien. There's Judge Death. There, you know, some weird people. Some shooting. Some killing. Some. Yeah. Stuff. There's a. There's that demon from this one story that she fought against that has a bunch of weird arms and stuff mm. like that. Right. Uh, no, I. I think the dragon is more sort of symbolism. Whatever. Yeah, nature of oneness or something, mm. as I recall. Nice. You know, could be anything, honestly. Yeah. But yeah, very pretty though. I definitely give it the uh, the art stamp of approval. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 got kind of a blacklight poster feel almost, mm-hmm. just all the starscapes and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, speaking of, or no, I don't know. Jeez, getting around the world, I guess. Or yeah, I don't know. Maybe dragons. Is that bad yeah. taste? Yeah. <laughs> dragon. Yeah. Well, dragon adjacent, certainly. Mm-hmm. I guess. Um, let's, let's just get started with some new stories that we're getting towards the back of the progs or the back of the issues here, starting with Story 8, Shimura. Script robot Robbie Morrison, art robot Frank Quitely, letting robot Ellie DeVille. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see this story. I think there's some fun stuff, but I'm, I'm not a fan of the font they're using for this story set in, in Hondo Sit, uh, the Dreadverse version of, of Japan. All of the A's have this like line over the top of it that kind of looks like a, um, like a Shinto temple or something like that. Right. Yeah. I know such a, yeah, it's generally got kind of, like, that's the big one I can point out to, but I feel like the whole thing gives it a feel of, like, the same font as might be in, like, a uh, like a Chinese takeaway menu or something like that, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> what is it? Like, I uh, studied my font. So, yeah, you, you're right. There's still that uh, comics uh, re- readability uh, to mm-hmm. it, but yes, it definitely is, has been modified to be more Asian. Vague, right? Just... Yeah, yeah, vague. Yeah, it. It's like if they, if like all these, all these comics had the same themes, had like a theme, had like a theme song, and then when we started this one, it had that one, you know, sting that they always have when you go to like Asian places. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, I, yeah. I understand what you mean about that. You know, like, you know the one I'm talking about. I, everybody. I think Come everyone on. knows, right? <laughs> Uh, and you're right. When they do go lowercase, it does lose a lot of legibility and does look more menu-esque. But yeah, as long as they keep it mm-hmm. uppercase, it's like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's stylized, you know. <laughs> I, I understand what they're going for. And because I understand it, I'm not sure I like it, <laughs> <basically>. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but I do think this story is kind of interesting. We're in Hondo. It's the year 2113, so technically two years ago from... Um, modern modern um uh dread world or maybe they just or actually it might be 2015 but they just quote something from 2013 now that i'm thinking about it but anyway um a large bald man in a suit directs a young boy away from some kids on the street as we learn about reports of an increase in bosozuki gangs 
and the Bososuku are is a real Japanese subculture that's centered around like motorcycles and biker gangs and stuff like that. Um, a couple bikes indeed come street cream, screaming past hover bikes now. They try to steal the kid and kill his protectors with electrified weapons. There's one cool kind of laser or electricity garrot thing that I think is pretty neat. Um, and it seems like these guys are able to like suck your memories and experiences out of you and get high off that, I guess. Even the Yakuza would be ashamed of them, though, Eli. As we, and that's said by an attacking Hondo judge. He's fighting these guys down. He's taking out bikers with laser shuriken. He's got a lady partner judge that cuts a bike in half with a wakazashi sword. And he's even got dang electronic nunchucks. The day is saved, but not without cost, as it seems the information about this crime came from a an overweight Yakuza leader who now sits in the back of his limo and taunts the uh, the chief the uh, the the top judge um, that was on this case, uh, Judge Inspector Shibura. After some um, we're two sides of the same coin kind of stuff, the Yakuza. Oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead Eli. No, that was I just, uh, yeah that the the standard. You're me and you aren't yeah. too different, like. Exactly. Exactly. That's how all the that's how all all crime bosses talk to cops. You know, it's either either we aren't so different, you and I, or we're two sides of the same coin. Like, you know, we the two us us being here creates balance or something like that. Um, Shimura then turns to to berate his partner, Cadet Inaba. They then go in turn to return the kid to his father. Um who's the uh, the CEO of the Endo Corporation, but as they approach the building, it explodes with a massive foom. And I like to look at this foom, yeah. I gotta say. Like, the, the the sound effect is part of the explosion. Yeah. I think it's really neat. They do that with, a, a, like, a lot of their uh, automatopoeia, a lot of their sound effects. I really love that. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna try to incorporate that in my work a little bit. I mean, it ju- yeah, it just looks like they're being blasted back, like by the foom itself. Right. Like that's what the explosion looks like. Right. You know, it, it it's fun. Yeah. It, earlier, you could see it in the um, like when the uh, uh, hover bike got cut in half. Like the word mm-hmm. "cut," it looks like it's cutting the bike. Like, yeah, I wonder if they're taking if this is like a like a manga influence or something it, like that. that yeah, taking, that's a lot yeah, of vibes some, I'm getting. Yeah, some some Japanese influence for this, of course, Japanese uh, based story. Shimada runs into the building past bodies and to the board of directors where he sees several dead men, one dissolved by acid, one speared by a whole bunch of like fiber optic cables, and another asphyxiated by gas or something. And then we learn that everybody in the Endo network had their brains fried and um, Inaba sees it as a targeted attack as they get debriefed about the situation. Shimura, and here we also see that he's got a sweet scar on his face of like two lines and stuff like that over his eye. Love a good over-the-eye face scarring. Oh, yeah. That's a top scar. <laughs> and he wonders why a, a tech is, so, someone from tech division is telling them all this and not someone from med division. It's fishy. And it seems that there was a witness to all this murder, a woman named Yukio Hidari, a cybernetic surgeon from the Tawaka Corporation. And Inaba notices something strange, which is that uh, Hidari is looking up at the security camera during the attack instead of at all these people dying horribly in front of her. 
which is suspicious. So the judges then decide to head over to the uh, Tawaka Corporation building, where the elevator is cramped and weirdly warm, (laughs) and they soon find themselves face-to-face with an at-most-one-quarter-human-being cyborg corporate dude who's, like melded into this giant computer system and he's got a half robot body and stuff like he's kind of kind of a lizardy robot body oh it's weird right he has no need for human comforts <laughs> so uh and, and and this i guess is the ceo or boss of the taoka corp he says he no longer needs dr hidari and implies that the murders may have been yakuza based they're always a good blame for everything <laughs> we learned that Hadari helped Teoka merge with the electronics of his corporation, allowing him to control the entire company personally from this giant techno room they're in. And we see, as he's saying this, we see a few of his remaining human fingers be cut off by robots and replaced by uh, electronic ones. Gross, but cool. Yeah, no, it's a power move for sure, <laughs> definitely. And I think, but be unlike some of the heavy metal dread and stuff, it is also mostly bloodless. That sort of mm. just shows like how little humanity this character has left at all. Right. I think. Yeah. Um, Shimura says he'll have to report Taoko's robotic near robotic status, but apparently he has a deal with Chief Judge Ono. And sends and kicks him out of their building because they're clearly here without permission. And I like that they were seated in these chairs that he clearly created out of, like, movable electronic dealies or something like that. And when he kicks him out, the chairs snap shut like you're out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Back at HQ, Shimura says it's his problem for not calling ahead as Inaba rushes to the shower because apparently the bio-circuitry of the uniforms make her uncomfortable, but also gives us a chance to, you know, see her not wearing a lot of clothes, which, you know, that's how you do it. It, It's weird to (laughs) be in, like, skin-tight suits but still feel the need to make a shower scene. Like, it's like, all right, sure. Yeah, I mean, like, Shimura's got a very suggestive zipper right over his crotch. I can't help but but, but, but notice. Like, there's a lot going on with these uniforms. Right, but I did think it was cool to... um, uh, explain to us that oh yeah these suits are giving you abilities like okay that's that's kind of cool yeah and it does sort of s- then set something up that'll be picked up later in the right. in the story right. um shimura is called to the chief's office where he gets chewed out for messing with Tayoka, whose technology is keeping hondo sit on top even building the orbital nuclear plants that power the city and this is clearly one of those like corrupt cop kind of like you know don't go after the most corrupt person in the city kind of situation shimura's unhappy um with this and that the chief wants to reject his assessment that inaba should be a street judge and the chief is like oh like you could go far if you weren't such a straight edge boy scout shimura and shimura's like nah, i'm happy where i am We later see Shimura naked with a short-haired lady in bed, but he's called out to meet with that Yakuza from before, so he goes to meet him. It seems that the Yakuza is taking care of that Endo kid until he grows up, and thus he gives Shimura the location of Dr. Hidari to take him out. Take her out, I should say. The mobster then taunts Shimura, like, oh yeah, like, you need my help and you can't do nothing about it. Not so different, you and I, woo. And then Shimura just backhands him. <laughs> the gangster calls off his goons and is like, I, 
in the past I would have you killed, but now you judges suck so much that I'll let you live in shame instead. Ooh. <laughs> Soon Shimura and Inova have found Hidari, and as they beat up her sumo wrestler guard, she explains that she's developed a crystalline virus program which can be used to destroy the horror that Teoka has become as we sort of see that their their past relationship and her feeling bad, like having been in love with him, but then him becoming an inhuman monster. At the same time, a bunch of of animate like fiber optic cables rise up out of the ground kill Hidari's bodyguards and then one of them sort of rides through this guy's body and and forms the face of Taoyaka to to threaten Hidari and, and the judges we see a capsule headed towards them as the bio circuitry and the judges uniforms like spark and have lightning going everywhere and incapacitate them Shimura asks Hidori for the virus when suddenly there's a massive crash and the floor crumbles all around them. To be continued, next time, Daemonicus X Machina, <laughs> demon from the machine, Eli. I like it. Yeah. Definitely yes. a lot of manga influence, but I also really like mm-hmm. the um, legibility of uh, this particular artist. Um, everything's mm-hmm. very clear to identify, you know what's going on, you can see it really nicely. And uh, and then just how the words are used uh, very creatively. And it's, it's that type of creative where you're like, oh, obviously that's how it should be done. But like, mm-hmm. oh, but people don't do that. No, yeah, absolutely. Way. I mean, we we talked about this when he did Missionary Man as as well. But 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 Frank Quitely is really great. And it's, you know, even relatively early in his career here, I think you can see some of the elements that will make him be really successful as time goes by. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to study him a bit more. Really cool Good. stuff. Totally. And hey, speaking of a master's masters at their craft, Eli, we let's finish up with Story 9, Return of the Taxidermist. Script robot John Wagner, art robot Ian Gibson, letting robot Annie Parkhouse. Oh yeah. I'm really excited about this story. It's one it's one that I've been looking forward to since we got started in the magazine, honestly. Um, it's a really fun one. I'm a big I'm a big fan of this artist Ian Gibson. He's a he's a long timer in 2000 AD, um, and it's really nice to see him back doing sort of an extended story. He's done some longer stories in the past, but not since like the mid 80s or so. So this is sort of a big return for him. There's also a callback. We first met human taxidermist Jack uh, Sardini in January of 1987, but in the previous years he's been keeping to himself. There's just sort of a a long-term fad in Mega City 1, Eli. You know, usually when you die, you don't get buried. You get sent to Recyc or whatever. Um, but the very rich can pay to have their dead loved ones be, like, stuffed and mounted by taxidermists so they can sort of, you know, be in your living room till the end of time or something. Like you do. That's what they would have wanted. Totally. Um... At Recyke, we see Sardini out over the conveyor belt. He's sort of pointing out corpses to a sales rep, which are then pulled and processed. He's buying nine bodies all told, but for what? Um, The workers remark that Sardini used to be the best taxidermist in the city. He won the bronze medal for it in the 1982 Olympics. Or, sorry, excuse me, the 2082 Olympics. That's right. He's getting older now. His hands are not as steady. 
and he's training apprentices named Roy and Eugene, though Eugene will never really be a good taxidermist. Plus, he's part of the stutter club and just keeps stuttering to be to be fun because it's the in thing to do these days. Suddenly, a young woman pushes into the shop. She's got a casket being pushed behind her, and Jack Sardini recognizes her as Fraulein Kroppenstumpfer. No, Korpenstumpfer. And Korpenstumpfer means, do my best, but that means a body tamperer or like like corpse robber or something like that in German. And she's brought in the body of her father, who was another taxidermist, and said that Sardini had the best hands in the business. It seems that the elder Korpenstumpfer was the one who won the gold medal in the 2082 Olympics. His flair for the dramatic in a corpse piece called the birth of adolf hitler which is extremely nazi-ish <laughs> little uncomfortable but it captured the judge's imagination whereas sardini was more technically proficient but had less of a flair for style and so was stuck in third uh, uh corper stopper um, was gonna trap was about to go on a world tour traveling with an exhibit of his work, but was killed just by a random sniper, and now his daughter wants Sardini to prepare his body. He agrees, and the younger Corpostopfer takes her leave. Sardini works furiously, and in a few days he's done it, a complete recreation of the original birth of Hitler scene, but with Corpostopher as the doctor delivering the infant caretaker. It's weird. Um, the Fraulein's Uncle Jervis is amazed at this work and offers Sardini a chance to join the Mega City One Olympics team in the taxidermy event for the Games of 2016. He could win gold, but he only has a day to think about it. At first, Sardini rejects the offer. You mean he'd need a res- an assistant and he can't leave the shop alone. But the Fraulein says that she has dual citizenship and could easily serve on the Mega City One team with him. He'd have a chance to at last win the gold. Sardini goes to think about it. At night, he talks it over with his wife, who doesn't answer because she's dead and stuffed, I guess. <laughs> um. <laughs> In the morning, it seems news of Sardini's entry is spreading around, even though he hasn't said yet, said yes yet. And at least one sports analyst says that his old-timey by-hand methods won't stand up against the hip young taxidermists from up-and-coming taxidermy hotspots like China, Hong Kong, and the Cuban wastes. We also see an interview with Mega City One's mixed pairs sex team. They just... They're going to have sex, and that's the event, I guess. <laughs> and just sort of, basically, this is the winter Mega Olympics, so they're a little crazy, it seems like. Right. I'm trying to figure out how reasonable that is to make that an event. Definitely not in America, I don't think. But I mean, you got to have the positions. I mean, different positions right, or something exactly. like that. You know how athletic you'd have to be to actually be able to compete. I mean, I'd imagine it's just one of these ones like figure skating or something where you you know judges give scores at the mm-hmm. end of it, right. and so you know if you can do a triple back axle thrust or something right. like that, yeah. then I, I would be able you know, to perform under that type of pressure. You know, you can't <laughs> anyway. I mean, that's part of it, obviously, <laughs> right? <laughs> like being being able to have sex under the hot lights. That's part right. of the event. Right. In well, the first place. That's just old dude staring at you the entire time. Right. 
Yeah, <laughs> grading. You're grading the arch of your of your thigh muscles or something. Jeez, <laughs> gross. All right. Um, Sardini arrives at his shop and sees that business is up after the announcement. He confronts the Fraulein and learns that she has entered him into the games. He could still backs out if he wants. But at this point, he's so pissed at all these whippersnappers saying that he's too old that he decides to go for it. Pack your bags. We're off to the Mega Olympics. A month later at Katmandu, the games begin. We see Sardini and Korperstofer um, heading out in the Mega City One procession. And we learn that her first name is Hedda. And I'm going to stop. I'm going to start calling her that from here on out. Um, <laughs> she's confident about his chances as the Nepali hang gliding team flies around the Olympic torch and is set on fire by it doing some kind of... Harry Carey, suicide, hang gliding kind of religious thing. I don't know. The leader, Mahama Tensing, announces the start of the games. And on day two, the taxidermy event starts. They must skin and pose their bodies within an hour. And Sardini is nervous around all these young competitors. Still, he's ready to make his mark. Contestants, begin skinning! (laughs) And that's the end. And we'll pick this up next time. As the first cut is the deepest. Very interesting. Uh, I like this story. It has a lot of potential. It does that thing where it, I end up having more questions than it answers. But I'm okay oh, totally. with that. <laughs> I mean, anytime there's a chance for just sort of weird future sports, even if it's not really a sport, but just for right. sports announcing and stuff like that. Yeah. With with uh, John Wagner as a writer, you've got some really great... Um, like opportunities for things to get pretty funny and, and, and fun. And I'm really liking um, Ian Gibson's art here as well. Just, he draws all these, char- all these, all these people have a lot of character. Mm-hmm. And then he's also m- matching that with just the, the raw weirdness of this taxidermy stuff. There's just a lot of like skinned bodies hanging from coat hooks and stuff like that. That's a little, that that's pretty weird, honestly. Right. Um, I also think it's funny that uh, he lost to uh, the guy who made the you know the birth of Hitler thing, but mm-hmm. the artist in me said like, oh, he just had boobs on his. That's clearly why the judges got it. It definitely definitely had a lot of yeah. I, I think they they do they do talk about him having more flair, right? And a lot of times flair <laughs> does equate to nudity for right. sure. Exactly. So I'm really I relate. Okay, please. Nah, I just yeah, read. I really want to see what. His entry was because they say it was like a bus crash or something like that. So I want to know, like, what that looked like. What's going on with that? You know, (laughs) a lot of fun. Totally, yeah. And then just also like we've seen, we've heard about the sex event. There seems to be a hang glider (laughs) event. I want to see what these futuristic sports are. Yeah, that's what we're here for. That's freaking. There's a yeah. I want to see these Olympics. All right, I gotta see them. Right. What do we have to look forward to? Yeah, come on. And with that, though, we finished our stories for fall of ninety of nineteen ninety three. So I gotta know, Eli, what are your top and bottom thrills? Now, I feel like there's always more more thrills. Like I'm always trying to like uh, narrow it down, but uh, lately mm. it's we we have so many. Like it's hard to. I think we should yeah. do top two and bottom two. That way, I I don't need to work so hard. 
Uh, Fair enough. I mean, yeah, we are sort of, because we're covering four uh, issues. We are getting a lot of sort of back and forth it, here, or a lot of stories starting and stories ending at uh, once for sure. Counterpoint to myself, I tend to just do that anyway. I tend to be like, here's my number one and a runner up, and then I here's my bottom and then a runner. Yeah. So I'd say you know do your best. You know, <laughs> definitely my goal is always to have just just one and one. But you know, right. you can bend the rules if if you please. All right. Perfect. Um, I really liked um, – well, let me make sure I'm getting the names right. Top, and this is just due to my manga addiction. Uh, it was this uh, – oh, uh, uh, Shimmer. uh, sh- uh, Shimmera. Yeah. yeah. Shimmera. Um, yeah, just really love uh, the art. Love what they're doing with font. Like, uh, I don't know. Is it mostly the art? Is that why I'm giving it? Maybe. I mean, it's whatever you like. Like, definitely, it's it's that that that's a totally fine reason right. for sure. And I mean, I do think the story is interesting. I do find myself like, oh, what's going to happen next? Um, I wanted to just throw um, heavy metal dread on the bottom, but I actually was really interested in the whole grandma cyber monkey plot. <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh, what's what is going to happen? Yeah. Uh, so. Um, I also I wrote also really like the taxidermist like that's, that's also I've been enjoying mm-hmm. that too. Uh, dang, and then Mechanismo was here too. My goodness, I just can't. Yeah. And then there's Hershey's doing stuff with orphans. Uh, love that art style. That's one of my favorite artists. Yeah, I'm actually going tops easy. It's just uh, I don't know what to put no, on a, bottom this time. Yeah, it's it's a good situation to be in, honestly. Like um, I, here's what I'll put on bottom. I'll put on bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, rapid growth is because the mm. amount of nonsense that they tried to put on was just a sure. little too much. That's fair. Uh, for sure. <laughs> I'm here for sci-fi shenanigans nonsense. Don't just yeah. make me... Too sci-fi. Right. The too magical or whatever. Right. Exactly. Too much fi. Right. I need I need more sci to balance up the fi. <laughs> totally. Um, so I'll put, I'll put that on bottom. And then top, uh, I think I will... I'll go with uh, Shimura, uh, just because. Uh, nice. Yeah, it's easy. I, I can I can sleep with that, and I don't, I, I won't uh, I, I won't have to go back on it. Uh, nice. And then, uh, yeah, I'm really I'm really struck actually by how decent the magazine is right now. <laughs> like these stories are mostly pretty good. It's it's better than in 2000 AD where we're really struggling through some not very great like maybe one or two okay like okay or pretty good stories, but also a fair amount of pretty bad ones. This right. one much less of a much less of a grown factor at this point in the magazine, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, especially when you've got um, John Wag, especially for writing, when we've got John Wagner doing both Dread and a second thing, like like doing Dread and Taxidermist in one issue, that is not bad. Um, I think for my top, hmm, I am tempted to say the taxidermist. I really like this opening section, just really creating this whole world of taxidermy as a sport, which I had not really thought of before, but I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Though I'll say I really like Shimura as well. I think that's a really fun, it's really interesting story about like corruption and stuff. And I'm just, you know, listen, as a comics fan, I'm always a always a sucker for like sci-fi Japanese stuff. Like <laughs> it's hard to hard to say no to it, you know. Um though I'm also very interested to see where this uh, uh mechanismo story is as well. Those are just a couple top ones, but I think Taxidermist is top for me. Mm-hmm. For bottom, I'll say Heavy Metal Dread, I guess. 
it's just too weird for me, kind of, and really stands out from the rest of the stories on offer, I, I guess. I know there are like two main stories. Is there any particular one that you're putting bottom bottom or is there Um I might actually say the ape one is the bottom bottom, just because it seemed like it just kind of ended. Like there wasn't really a full explanation for why the apes rebelled and stuff like that, or if there was I didn't pick up on it, I guess. So I don't know. It just didn't really feel like enough of a story to me, hmm. though. Of course, the art was terrifying and all that stuff. Right, so I was, killed I, these late old ladies, and that's still something. Yeah, I was gonna say I could have. Sw- I, I would. I would have guessed your uh, lip monsters would have uh, traumatized you into putting it on the bottom. I mean, honestly, the <laughs> yeah, the kissograms are so horrifying that I gotta respect it. You know? <laughs> like so, so bad, I it's good. Yeah, well, I, I can't just be like. Like, ugh, like, no, no, sir. I gotta be like, oh, well, that, that, that made me have that visceral, ugh. So it's gotta have something behind it, mm. you know? <laughs> I feel, I respect that. That's a good one. <laughs> but, but that's just enough to keep it from being like bottom, bottom, mm-hmm. still in the bottom, just not the worst, not, <laughs> not the lowest of right. the low. Yeah. I like that you still yeah. have plot. You're like, hey, what story did you tell? I know you grossed me yeah. out and gave me nightmares, but what's your message? Yeah. <laughs> I don't really have to hand it to them. Right, you know? right. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> awesome. Anyway, I, I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Big Mac One on iTunes, Titch, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or podcast site at BigMegOne.com. Contact us at BigMegOne at gmail.com on the 2080 forums or on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. For all those, check out Big Meg One with one written out and you'll find us. Feel free to drop us a rating or review where you listen to us or suggest us if someone's looking for a cool podcast. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardingham, and your friends at the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash That's the podcast network. Then come back next time as the plot thickens in Shimura, the taxidermist goes for the gold, and the creep arrives to threaten the undercity of Mega City 1. And until then, I'm Conrad. There you are. And we are Big Mac 1. Rocket!